Well, good evening. This is um, a, the first of a series of three lectures, not lectures, talks, uh, that follow on from Esther Lightcap Meek's visit to Australia. And um, we're just exploring some of the ramifications of the issues that she raised while she was here in Australia. And we've broken it down to three categories. I'm doing cosmology tonight. In a month's time, Mark Ridgway will be doing knowing and discipleship. And then the month after that, Lisa Aiken will be doing knowing and hope. So to kick off tonight, I wanted to pick up a few things that Esther said. Esther emphasized very much that there's, for my mind, two levels of knowing. There's the, what she called the focal, focal knowledge, knowledge that we can focus on and understand. And then there's subsidiary knowledge, which bubbles away beneath the surface and we find it very hard to articulate. And what I understood Esther to be saying was that you have to combine those two to get a full picture of reality. What I want to argue tonight is that since the time of Newton, we've been on a fast track towards focusing on the focal and ignoring or discrediting the subsidiary. When, um, when Newton came along, the world was a very small place. The earth was at the center the planets revolved around not too far away. God had obviously put us at the center and everything was um, either uh, well, based on the Genesis account if you were in the Christian, Jewish or Muslim world or it was in Greek philosophy or some Eastern philosophies. But what, whatever the case, the world seemed a very intimate place where human qualities and perceptions seemed to be primary. The world seemed to be created for us. Mystery abounded, wonder abounded. And then Newton got on the job. Galileo came slightly before Newton, but Newton built on Galileo. And the thing that Newton realized more than anything else was, yes, the world is a complex place. If you want to understand it, you have to break it down into tiny little bits. So to do that, Newton invented calculus. And what calculus did, if you have a look at the first slide on Slide number two, you take a complex motion of some object represented by that squiggly line. That's far too complicated to understand. What you have to do is you have to take smaller and smaller bits of that line until you're dealing with just one particular point. He's, he was dealing in what he called infinitesimals. And that became 
what I want to argue is that that has become the mindset of the modern worldview. Dealing with a complex situations in smaller and smaller bits. In fact, trying to make everything understandable in terms of infinitesimals. So motion became one point on a line as slide number three demonstrates. But of course that only gives you a snapshot at a moment in time and a place in space. It doesn't really give you a full picture of a living world. But it does give you some pretty good predictive power. And that's being used unfortunately to terrible effect in Ukraine at the moment because you've got a very simple system, the Earth's gravity and force coming out of the end of a artillery piece and it follows a fairly uniform motion. Modern science has embarked since Newton on this quest to capture everything we poss can possibly think of and experience in this infinitesimal um, this infinitesimal explanatory system. So Newton suddenly understood that with his infinitesimals, with his calculus, he could predict the motion of a cannonball on slide number four. And that he could predict the motion of the planets using all the same mathematical tools. But of course, what you'll notice is that these are very simple systems. Once again, the cannonballs are exactly what's happening in the war in Ukraine. But they're very, very simple systems. And it turns out even the planet, the solar system is a very simple system. You've got the, basically that equation is a very easy equation to solve, the equation of gravitation. And with it, you can predict the motions of the solar system. So suddenly human beings became very confident. We can predict simple motion on the earth. We can predict planetary motion in the heavens. We can predict anything if we put our minds to it and proceed down this path. Anyway, 400 years later, we now have the Big Bang and modern cosmology, which is attempting to explain the universe from its very beginnings to the present day using nothing but physical laws. Really the laws that Newton, the project that Newton started has proceeded to the point where we're chasing a theory of everything. If we can just find that theory, if we can write it down, explain it, we'll have mastered the universe, uh, mastered ourselves, understood everything, and of course eliminated God from the equation. That's on slide seven. So this has led to 
speculation. How did the universe become amenable to human life? Because we're pretty fragile creatures. We can't live on Mars. We can't live on Jupiter. We, we can only live on this beautiful place called the Earth. And the Earth seems to be a planet of very unique properties. So Paul Davies, a famous author who's written many books on this subject, has written a book called The Goldilocks Enigma. The Goldilocks Enigma is how did a universe exist where hu human beings can live comfortably, enjoy all the um, wonder, beauty that we do? We seem to live in a Goldilocks universe is what, what scientists speculate because it says, as I, it says in this slide eight, the current state of fine tuning debate is raging in science and that's at the basis of the anthropic principle because now we understand things like gravity and, or we think we understand gravity, um, electricity, um, how the atom is made up, but it turns out that if gravity had been just a little bit weaker, no, no planets or stars would have ever formed. If it had been a bit, so the universe would have just been a cold, dark place expanding forever. If gravity had been a bit stronger, everything would have collapsed in on itself already. There'd be nothing but another big bang would, or a big collapse as they call it. But we seem to live in a Goldilocks universe where everything has been slowly, beautifully formed where stars twinkle in the sky, the planets revolve around the Earth, and the Earth can have the right climate, the right atmosphere for human development. Well, Paul Davies, in his book, narrows down several possibilities. And the first one, of course, is intelligent design, which most scientists, of course, reject. A creator designed the universe with the purpose of supporting complexity and the emergence of intelligence. At the opposite end of the scale is the absurd universe. Our universe just happens to be the way it is, randomly. Scientists don't like that approach either. So they start to speculate that there must be, it can't be intelligently designed and it can't be just a random mess that just suddenly happened to pop up in a Goldilocks universe. So next he moves on to the unique universe. There is a deep underlying unity in the physics that necessitates the universe being the way it is. Some theory of everything will explain why the various features of the universe must have exactly the values that we see.
But of course, this just pushes the problem one step away because now you've got to explain what the deep underlying unity of the universe is and how it got there. So maybe the universe itself is random, but the laws and the underlying symmetries of the universe, where did they come from? So then the scientists speculate, and of course this is all driven by the fact that they're desperately trying to find a way to explain the existence of us and the universe without the first option of intelligent design. They have to find some inherent mechanism in the universe itself that delivers this Goldilocks system. So the, the latest is the multiverse, which basically speculates that there's infinite series of big bangs. So the universe expands and, con and then contracts, goes back into a singularity, another big bang, off it goes again. And eventually, over infinite time, one's going to pop up that has exactly the Goldilocks features. Because every time the Big Bang cycle goes through, there's new, the laws are tweaked a bit, just randomly. There's, of course, no explanation given to why that might be the case. Anyway, I won't keep going on that. You get the picture. The main point is, how do we explain the universe by omitting that first line? Early on when um, Newton was speculating about the planets and how the solar system worked, he came up on it with a problem, which has remained a problem to the present day. It's called the three-body problem. And it's the problem that as long as you only have two bodies, it's very easy to form an equation or a solution for those problems. So the Earth around the sun is an easy problem to solve. If you include a third body in that system, it becomes random and chaotic, as the tenth slide shows. The reason why our solar system is not ra random and chaotic is because the sun has 99% of the mass of the solar system. So you can effectively just count each planet in its own two-body system with the sun. Although Jupiter particularly does exert some influence on the Earth, because Jupiter's about a, is a lot, lot bigger than the Earth. Um, and even though the solar system is relatively stable, our models can't predict more than about 100 million years into the future, a couple of hundred million years into the future. We don't know how stable it will be after that. three-body problem so suddenly becomes unsolvable. There's just too many factors compounding for us to be able to solve those sort of problems.
and even when Newton was forming the theories, his theory of the three laws of motion and gravitation, he knew there was something, he knew there was a deep underlying mystery still. Sorry, I think that's Siri. Still on it. I'm having some trouble with the connection. Please try again. Sorry, that was Siri interrupting me. So, even gravity, Newton of course proposed gravity, but Newton thought gravity was a total fiction. He thought, how can two bodies millions of miles apart possibly exert an influence on each other? So this is one of, a quote from Newton on slide 12. I have not been able to discover the cause of those properties of gravity from phenomena, and I frame no hypotheses for whatever is not deduced from the phenomena is to be called a hypothesis. And hypotheses, whether metaphysical or physical, whether of occult qualities or mechanical, have no place in experimental philosophy. So many of his contemporaries wanted him to explain gravity. He discovered this thing. What is it? He refused. He said, it's an occult quality. He called it an occult quality with no explanatory value. So another quote from Newton, which on slide 13, sorry it's a bit uh, blurry. I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. And here I want to come back to what Esther was saying. Newton found a few little focuses that assisted in explaining simple motions. He wasn't claiming to have found a theory of everything. He was, he was claiming to have found a few simple equations that helped us tremendously from a practical point of view and in certain explanatory ways. But as far as Newton was concerned, there was a great ocean of truth lying all undiscovered still. And I think this is, this is the big dichotomy between a scientific worldview and a worldview, a scientist, scientific worldview, I should say, and its drive to exclude the subsidiary that still exists in truth. It fails to recognize that all it's doing, science is doing is picking up focuses in various areas and various fields that help us to predict and manipulate and explain certain phenomena. This was typified further in Newton by the fact that he clearly realized that light was something different again. He spent a lot of time thinking about what light was. This is on slide 15. 14. 14, sorry. Optics of a treatise on light. He was the first one who understood that you, white light was made up of all the colors of the spectrum. 
Strangely enough, he was also an alchemist because he knew that matter, again, was something different and mysterious. He had no idea what matter was. So he, he spent a lot of his life trying to convert various substances into gold, using the, seeking the philosopher's stone. So this was, this was somebody who, on the one hand, started the whole revolution towards focal, the focal, but was searching constantly for the subsidiary everywhere because he saw mystery everywhere. Of course, since Newton, we realise that gravity is not the attraction of two distant bodies, but it's the curvature of space-time on slide 16. Thanks to Einstein's work. But of course, what does curvature of space-time mean? It may as well be the attraction of two bodies at a distance. Like Newton, we have to say we have no idea what space is, we have no idea what time is, and we don't know what the curvature of space-time is. But Einstein's theory of relativity allows us to focus a little bit more and be a little bit more predictive about time and space. In addition, we now, of course, talk about atoms. In, that's, that's how we have focused our attention on matter. And slide 17 shows a pretty rudimentary picture of an atom. But that picture of the atom is already showing a lot of problems because the nucleus is full of positively charged protons. Well, electri electromagnetism tells us that two positively charged particles should be repelling each other. So the nucleus should fly apart, but it doesn't. It's a, it's a stable structure. So we get out our particle accelerators, our Large Hadron Colliders, and we start smashing them to bits, all these protons and neutrons, and we think we've discovered a particle that binds the nucleus together. But I would contend that this is just more and more focusing on smaller and smaller bits, but it's not giving us any insight into the mystery that we experience as human beings. Electrons also negatively charged, they should spiral into the nucleus because positive and negative attract problems. Anyway, now through quantum theory, we know that particles are waves and waves are particles and electrons don't orbit atoms. They occupy clouds around the atom in mysterious diffuse ways. But quantum theory gives us, by focusing on just quantum equations, we can predict various outcomes of experiments. And the big goal, of course, is to try and figure out whether all this focusing can explain who we are. Because after all, the universe is an interesting place, but the really interesting question is, what is a human being? Because we look around the universe and 
we are by far the most complex creature we can find, or complex structure, or complex machine, whichever way you want to look at it. We're quantum levels above anything else we can see in complexity around. Well, in, our, in a scientist, scientific worldview, the human being, of course, is a collection of atoms that work together in an organized mechanical way. But the, the thing is, this doesn't deliver anything like the experience of human beings. A brain is not a mind. And this is the hard, what's called the hard problem in philosophy. There's lots of problems in philosophy, but the really hard problem in philosophy is what is consciousness? Where does it come from? It seems you can't fo focus down on the bits because consciousness always wants to take you back up to the big picture. And the hard problem was, this term was coined by a philosopher called David Chalmers, who was an Australian, by the way. But it's been around since the time of Descartes. Descartes, of course, was the first philosopher who pro proposed dualism as a world, as an explanation for a human being. There's a mind and a body. And that, the, that proposition still remains, that we're not just a body, we have something else called minds, which deliver the whole range of human experience. So just reading slide 19, philosopher David Chalmers writes that even once we have solved all such problems about the brain and experience, the hard problem will still persist. And I just pulled out an extract from an article from The Guardian in, two th sorry, that says 2105. I've time-traveled, it should say 2015. <laughs> um, which I'd like to read, because I think it, it sums up the modern world view of what a human being is and the problems with that view. But it was always bound to grow unacceptable to an increasingly secular scientific establishment that took physicalism, which is the position that only physical things exist, as its most basic principle. To a physicalist, the glasses, eyeball, retina story is the only story. But to a thinker of Chalmers persuasion, it was clear that it wasn't enough. It told you what the machinery of the eye was doing, but it didn't begin to explain this, that sudden, breathtaking experience of depth and clarity. Chalmers' thought experiment is his attempt to show why the mechanical account is not enough and why the mystery of consciousness, conscious awareness goes deeper than a purely material science can explain. Now, I've, la I've labelled this a physicalist view as a two-body solution to the, my words, of course. That's a two-body solution, looking for a simple answer. 
But the hard problem recognises that actually consciousness and human beings are a three-body problem. There, there's this fundamental unsolvability about what a human being is and what consciousness is. That, and we can't get to the bottom of that by focusing. I'll just take, take your mind back to Esther's. One of Esther's favourite analogies was riding a bike. We can focus on what we're doing with our feet for a moment, but if we do that, we're in danger of losing the whole rhythm of riding or steering the bike. And that can be useful when you're trying to t tell somebody how to ride a bike, but then they've got to get on the bike and master the whole thing at once. The way modern cosmology is approaching the subject is to try and focus on each individual part as if that's going to deliver some sort of whole. It's trying to use a two-body solution to derive, a th to answer a three-body problem. Does that make sense? Now, the last couple of slides um, I'm going to be a bit cheeky here and I'm going to propose that there's analogy in our interpretation of scripture as well. Because of course scripture is a kind of cosmology. It's an, it's an attempt to explain the nature of reality, what the universe was made for, what, what a human being is and what a human being was made for. So on, on slide 20 on the left-hand side, I've given a three-body version of what in Christian terms is called um, salvation. And Jesus, I think, in Matthew 13, presented it as a three-body problem. It's not propositional. It's not an equation. Or a formula and of course everyone knows it well but I'll read it out for those on the tape as well and it's the this parable of the sower a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, of course, this is typical of all, all, most of the way that Jesus taught, which was in parables. How many times have we lamented that it wasn't just a propositional explanation, a focal? Why wasn't he more focal? So we could understand exactly what was happening. But I think that's because Jesus was presenting us with a three-body problem, not a two-body problem. On the other side of the slide, Ephesians 2. Now, I'm not suggesting that Paul was a two-body guy, but I think that tendency because of 
the way we think is to interpret Paul particularly in a two-body solution way. Try and extract focal, limited, propositional truths that will give us an explanation for everything. So when we read this passage in Ephesians 2, which I will do now, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one should boast. Now there's wonderful things in there, but Paul particularly, like especially if you think about Romans, Galatians, has been, um, well a system has been created about Paul, Pauline theology which is very, very propositional. Of course, Calvinism would be a, a strong example of that. I'll, give, I'll just give one more example of a two-body problem and a three-body problem in Scripture or what can be perceived in that way. The Ten Commandments. They seem to be, each one seems to be a two-body problem. You shall have no other gods before me. This is slide 21. You shall not make for yourself an image, etc., etc. Seem to be a very simple proposition a bit like Newton's two-body problem. So rather than two bodies being you and God, and the, and the commandments, for instance, and the farmer and the seed, and the previous one, what are the two bodies? So just looking at slide 21 again, The Ten Commandments are often interpreted as a two-body problem. A law and a punishment. A law and a punishment. There's two very... Whereas Paul tells us that the law is a schoolmaster. It's a steward. The law was given as a gift to help us understand all sorts of things, really to understand the mind of God. I'm just speculating, but the mind of God, our true natures, the beauty of the system that God created when he created human beings. Whereas we so easily lower it into just being a reward and punishment system. Whereas a three-body way of looking at it, of course, is given by Paul in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I mean, the fruits of the Spirit give all the law and then far more richness. It's not focal. It's very subsidiary, if you were to use Esther's terminology. But it, by being subsidiary and not focal, it delivers a far richer landscape for human humanness and pursuit of God than the, the, the commandments, which seem to narrow it down and focus it. So I've just come to the end. I think um, there's plenty to speculate on there. I hope it was useful. And uh, we look forward to the next two talks at the end of October and the end of November. Anything else I should...